and welcome to the City of the Great King podcast with your host, Tyler Swatsky. That's me. Hello. The world is getting nutty again. Nutty, I tell ya. <laughs> Are we going to get climate lockdowns this fall? What do you think? Are we already in for it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> just like to inform you of what's going on in the Sunday School lessons. We are doing Biblical Literary Structures, Literary Devices. The Word of God, the Bible, is a really cool book. And it turns out there's more than meets the eye when it comes to the Bible. Maybe Augustine wasn't your wasn't so much your thing. Well, now we're talking about some literary structures, and there are beautiful poetic structures, devices, that are used across the Bible to help us better understand what authors are trying to get at. encourage you to give that a listen. I'm having a lot of fun teaching that class. A lot of fun. Okay. Episode 14. 14 now. That's so many. 14. Wow. One day that won't be many. <laughs> <laughs> we are actively being deceived every day. All right? Let's just get right into gear. We are actively being deceived every day. You turn on the TV, you have a message being sold to you. Go for a drive, turn on your radio, and you'll have another message sold to you. Go to a local club, you'll have a message sold to you. Uh, everywhere you go, talk to people anywhere, and if you start talking about what matters to one another... Even if you don't intentionally get into personal values and beliefs, if you just talk to people, it'll come out what they are passionate about. And in telling you what they're passionate about, there is a value system that is being told to you. A value system, and these systems by which people derive their values can be actively deceptive. Yes, uh, somebody taught me once that Everywhere, at every time, there is somebody making money. There's always somebody making money. There's always a bill of goods that people want to sell you. And we can be very prone to being deceived when we do not have an anchor for truth. And we're going to get, talk about that for the next, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. The title of this is A Case for Believing the Evidence Before You. And this is not the title of something I thought I would do if you would have asked me this a few years ago, but let's get the principle down first. The principle is that we are supposed to live by the truth. Especially Christians, everybody, but Christians in particular live by the truth. And the truth happens to be an embodied person. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He calls himself the embodiment of the truth. Later on in John 17, verse 17, Christ himself says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, so Jesus says that God's word is truth, which is scripture. But John 1 tells us that the word of God, the logos, word, the Word of God was made flesh, and that was referring to Jesus being made flesh. He is the embodiment of the Word of God. We also get out of one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Colossians 2, 
verse 3. Speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Within Christ is wisdom and knowledge. And that's an important uh, phraseology there because anybody who knows anything about the Old Testament knows that in the book of Proverbs, it says repeatedly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but in Christ is held all knowledge and wisdom. So if you want knowledge, you want wisdom, you get it through Christ. And Christ is the, is the living embodiment of the word. Well, where's Christ? Christ is in heaven. So what do we have? We have the word. That's why Christ prayed, sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. And so, or sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we are supposed to live by the truth. Christians, by definition, Christian, Christ. Christ is the embodiment of truth. Tr so truthians, you could say, is what we are. We are, by definition, people of the truth. Now, even non-Christians can live by aspects of the truth because they live in a world in which there are objective truths and objective evils and wrongs. This is because of common grace. We all live in God's world. To be like Christ is to be like, is to be people who live by truth. We affirm what is true. We we live by what is true. This means we do not live by lies. There's a very popular book that was released a couple years ago, a book that I read and greatly enjoyed, aptly titled Live Not By Lies by Rod Dreher. I recommend it if you haven't read it yet. But this means that we don't live by lies. If something is false, we do not affirm it. If something is false, we do not live by it. Uh, now, what is... What is false? Um, to do something false is to lie. A lie is something that is false. And what is a lie? A lie is to tell some tell an untruth. If it's not true, it is a lie. And where do lies come from? According to scripture, the, the devil is the father of lies. So if you believe lies, you are believing things of the devil. If you believe truth, you are believing the things of Christ. You might not call yourself a Christian. You might not call yourself a Satan worshiper. But these are the categories in which our world is built. It is built in, uh, this is God's world, in which he sets the parameters. He is the embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ is. So anything that is true that we all collectively and objectively live by is because of the truth of Christ. But anything that is a lie comes from the devil. We also know in this world, sin is everywhere. And the father of lies is the devil. He He's basically the embodiment of sin. And he tempts people to sin. And he's got them in their grasp, in his grasp, that is. And so it's those two categories. Those are the ones. There's truth and there's untruth. Truth and lies. There's no neutrality is what I'm saying here. Christ is very clear that you're either for him or against him. There's no middle ground where I'm going to take a little bit of Christ's truth and a little bit of lies. I'm just neutral. I'm going to be neutral to everything. There's no such thing. Or I'm indifferent. I'm nothing. I'm not, I'm not anything. I'm just nothing. I believe I don't want to take a religion or a, or a philosophy. I'm nothing. Yeah, according to Christ, you are against him. Because those are the only two categories. Truth, untruth. Truth, lies. So what do I do then? Let's get let's get practical for a second. What do I do if I do not know if something is true or false? I get told conflicting reports. 
this group of people tells me that this is good. Another group of people tells me that this is bad. I don't know if this is true or false. What do I do? I'm conflicted. Well, we're going to talk about that. Before we do, I want to get into some epistemology 101. I'm going to be making a case for believing the evidence before you, right in front of you. The evidence in front of you. I'm going to make a case that of believing that, and I'm going to give some necessary caveats and all of that. But some epistemology 101. What is epistemology? Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do you know what you know? So there's a lot of things that we think that we know, and epistemology then is the study of how you know what you know. If you don't know why or how you know something, you probably don't actually know it. Or at least, even if you do know it, you will be very prone to manipulation and deceit. This is part of the issue of not knowing history and not knowing where we come from. Excuse me. If you don't know the truth about where you come from, you are very prone to be taken advantage of, to come under deceit, to come under falsehood, because people will manipulate where you came from and use that to, to push you and shape you into a certain direction and a certain belief pattern. So it's important to know why we know what we know, how we know it. And this is the basics, is that we should know why we know what we know. And your beliefs, you should be willing to have your beliefs challenged. And I think it's also proper to challenge each other's beliefs. There's a very arrogant and mean way of doing it. And yet we should not be afraid of people asking us what we believe and push us to explain why we believe it. Because it's not good enough just to say, well, because I feel like it's true. Well, that's not that's not a legitimate category. It, it's either true or it's false. Feeling like it is or not is not... That's not even part of the equation. Your feelings are not the arbiter of truth. So it's very important to know why you know what you know. The reasons for it. And... There's this really interesting thing that comes into evalu the evaluation of evidence. Evidence is usually what we say of uh, how we know what we know. I believe the evidence that I see and the facts that are here. Um, this is a big part of the scientific method, of course. We conduct experiments. We put the criteria in about what we're, what we're doing. And we try to find accurate, reproducible results with it that can be explained, that can be repeated. The... Ideally, they're true in other contexts as well. This is how we try to figure out things that are true. We get theories of knowledge based on uh, our observance of of these different types of tests and the scientific method and all, all of that. And yet there is this fascinating reality. There's a name for it. It's called the observer effect. See, you as a scientist or as somebody who's conducting an experiment, you can change your test subjects, you can change the environment in which it's happening, you can change the timing in which it's happening, you can change the criteria by which you're judging, you can change just about every single part of your experiment, but what you cannot ever change or remove is you. You are part of the experiment. As the observer, as the one writing down what is happening and trying to reproduce the results, this is the observer effect. You cannot remove you. And what that's basically saying is you come into everything that you evaluate with presuppositions. 
with a certain mindset, with a certain underlying pattern of beliefs. You have these when you go into an experiment or when you evaluate anything that somebody tells you is true or false. Uh, fluoride is bad for you and fluoride is in toothpaste. You should stop using toothpaste. I'm just giving an example. You are going to interpret what you just heard based on your presuppositions. And maybe that's going to make you go down a rabbit hole of toothpaste. Who knows? But you cannot remove you as the observer. So if you are going into an experiment believing that, you know what? Fluoride in our toothpaste could be very bad for our teeth. And you start doing studies. If you're open to that, you are going to be open then to conclusions of your experiment showing that fluoride in our toothpaste is really bad for our teeth. But if you go into that already with the belief, no, this is preposterous, that's so dumb. You are gonna go into your experiments with that belief and you will be shut off to any type of, quote, evidence that fluoride is bad for your teeth. This is why evidence in itself is not the most objective categories because you take yourself into it and your presuppositions. You have to interpret evidence. You have to interpret data. It doesn't just tell you that on its own. You cannot remove the observer effect. Let's get at a theological implication too. Uh, I'm gonna be. I'm talking a little bit about evidence and and believing truth and living by truth and all of that. Well, how do we then? How do we observe? truth in front of us. Well, usually we see it, and we even have a phrase called seeing is believing. Seeing is believing, and that's actually not true, by the way. Seeing is not believing. This is really interesting. If you're listening to this, you don't see me, and this is especially cool if you don't even know what I look like, and all you have so far is heard my voice. If I just showed you a picture of me, or all you had in your head was a picture of what I look like, what would you know about me? Well, you could, you, you could see my skin color, you could see my facial hair, you could see that I wear glasses unless I wear contacts, uh, you, you, you can see if I have freckles or not, you can see my hair color, how long my, like, you can get those facts, but do you actually know me based on that data? You don't. You don't know if I have a, a, a Gandalf beard, Lord willing, if I have a Gandalf beard, you can make certain assumptions about that. Maybe, oh, he uh, he just hates shaving. He just doesn't like doing it. Or he's just too lazy to shave. Or he can't afford a razor and scissors. Or he's just trying to look like Gandalf. See, there's all sorts of things and reasons that you can come up with for why I have a Gandalf beard. And yet... It might just be because my kids like it. Or I took a Nazarite vow and I'm refusing to shave. Like, you have no actual idea just because you see something. Seeing is not believing. But when you listen to me, when you hear my voice, now you start actually getting to know things about me. Even if I'm not telling you a whole lot of personal details about my life, there's a lot of things that you can learn about me by listening. And this is why it's really important even in our justice system and in, in the justice systems throughout history is that the accused gets to face the accuser and gets to be heard. You get to hear a defense because evidence of the eyes alone and what you see is very deceptive. Very. And it is open to the presuppositions and interpretations of the 
observer. That's your observer effect again. But when you start hearing me, then you can learn more about me. That You learn if I am a calm person or not. Uh, you can learn if I'm abrasive or all sorts of different things. Then you can start learning characteristics about me. And this whole thing about seeing, we place so much emphasis on our eyes. There's theological reasons for that. I think this goes uh, with the effects of sin. When we see, we, we sin often because we see something and it is enticing to us. We see something pleasing. That's why advertisements from companies will really try to advertise to your eyes. They want it to. They want whatever they're selling to look desirable to you. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Think of the very first sin. Uh, the fr the fruit was there, and it looked desirous to Eve's eyes. She saw it and, and desired it for its beauty, or and, and all of that. She saw something, and then s enters sin. So seeing is not believing. We can be very deceived by our eyes alone. Even the effects of lighting. Have you ever thought about how much lighting affects you? If you look at yourself in the mirror in certain lighting, you can be very happy about what you see. And you look at yourself in another type of lighting and you can be very disappointed. Like, who's that? Who's that guy? Who's that old lady? Lighting plays a big role in how we interpret what we see. Knowledge by sight alone is foolish. You hardly know anything just by seeing. and But hearing is far more important and far more reliable. And this is why Paul says in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't come to faith by seeing the word of God. We come by hearing the word of God. And... What I'm getting at here is that hearing plus sight, if it's Christianly interpreted, that is a path to true knowledge. I'll say again, hearing plus sight, Christianly interpreted, that is truthfully interpreted, is our path to true knowledge, is our path to knowledge. So our presuppositions, this touches at our presuppositions. Our presuppositions are that of Christ. This is God's world. I'm going to interpret the things I see as consistent with it being God's world. I'm not just going to believe what I see. I'm going to rely a little more primarily by what I hear. And then if that corresponds with what I see as well, and I'm interpreting it through a Christian worldview, I have arrived at the path to knowledge. So now here is a test for knowledge. What do my eyes and ears tell me? And now that's not the most profound question because we do this every single day. The way that we live our lives is through what we see and what we hear and we, we, we take in all that information and we make decisions about how we're going to react and, then, and so on and so forth. We see how other people react and we adjust accordingly and, and all of that. What do my eyes and ears tell me? especially if it's Christianly interpreted, we have to understand that we are not the standard for truth. My eyes and ears are not the standard for truth. I am not the arbiter of truth. Just because I see and hear something doesn't mean it's objectively, universally true. However, we live in God's world. I've said this a few times. And God is not a deceiver. God is not out there to trick us. We live in an ordered universe and an ordered world. This means there are things that we can actually know about this world. He's not trying to trick us in the miracles of biology that are out there, the miracles of what's in space, the miracles of life. He's, 
God's not trying to trick us. It is just majestic. That's why we can't fully understand these types of things. And, man, you talk, you look into some of the findings that there are in the world of biology, and it is just, it is miraculous. And you can go down that road, too, of study, and you'll just come away bewildered with the complexity and beauty of God's world. But we are not the standard or arbiter of truth. Let me use an example. Let's say that I tell you that you can walk across the road and you won't be hit. You don't even have to look to your left. You don't have to look to your right. You can walk right across that road, put your head up, and just walk straight, and you're not going to get hit. You want to know how I know that? Because I did it 50 times, and I marked, I wrote down, and I, I tracked it all. I put it on in this graph, and I can show you the times that I did it. I can show you where I did it. 50 times, I didn't even look left or right. I crossed the road, and I didn't get hit. You can do it, too. You can just walk across, and you won't get hit. Look at my studies. Look, I can show you how I, how I did this. Okay. Here's the thing. What you don't know is all the details about how I conducted my little experiment. You don't know that it was 2 a.m. and the road was actually just my driveway, and there's no other cars coming by. Things like that. This happens in the scientific world all the time. We can come to conclusions with a lot of assurance about what we studied and what we did. My eyes and ears told me that this is how it went, but you don't know the underlying presuppositions and data that went into it. We are not the arbiter of truth. Me walking across that road 50 times does not make me the, the arbiter that it is true that you can now walk across the road 50 times with your head held high, not looking left and right, and you won't get hit. You do that in any type of city or any type of road that has traffic, you will get hit. So we do not put ourselves in the position of being arbiters of truth, but we do submit to the truth. We submit to the truth. Another example. My senses tell me I am in a world of suffering. I don't need to read a book to see that. I don't need to hear a lecture to know that. From my very first moments of understanding, it becomes very obvious that we are in a world of suffering. Suffering is everywhere. However, because I live in God's world, there is also tremendous good. Even if you are not a Christian, and you, or, or if you have not ever thought in these categories of epistemology and, and, and presuppositions and all of that, how you know what you know, even, even if you don't know all these types of things, you just know by the basis of your experience, and because you live in God's world, that there is both suffering and there is tremendous good. So what are you going to do with that? You have to interpret the data in front of you. Why is there suffering? Why is there good? And there's a deep and rich Christian tradition that has asked and answered those questions for millennia. Let's apply all of this, this evidence of the eyes and the ears, if we're going to use those with Christian presuppositions, and let's apply it to some modern things. I want to talk about masks and vaccines for a second. Already some of you might be perking up, or already some of you might be saying, come on, don't do this. No, 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 no. We need to apply this where it actually matters and where we all experienced it. That's when the, that's when the point starts driving home. Let's talk about masks to start. 
see all the reports about masking when COVID started were that masks were not necessary. You remember even Fauci saying that? He flip-flopped on masks, I think, three times. And eventually, when it became mandatory, all the information of him saying that they were necessary uh, was scrubbed. And so he said that they were not necessary. We have lived through our whole lives here in North America. If you're in North America, we've lived our whole lives battling seasons of disease and sickness, and we have never done the masking thing. And now, all of a sudden, we need to wear masks to prevent spreads of infectious diseases. What does the evidence of your eyes and ears tell you? See, at first, all the data that was coming out of China, it's, you know, a lot of us didn't know very much, and it's highly suspect when information's coming from, from out there. We didn't have a lot of real-world experience with this thing. We don't have the evidence of our eyes and ears yet. We're just being told this could be very, very bad, and we're going to do some unprecedented things, and now you have to start wearing a mask. The mask came a few months later. But we didn't have much evidence of our eyes and ears. All that we knew is we've never had to do this with an infectious disease before. Already you should be perking up and, and questioning what's going on because the evidence of my eyes and ears say that not wearing a mask did not lead to me killing a whole bunch of people. Did not lead to grandma's dying. Well, now all of a sudden you wear a mask and you're being told that this mask is for your safety, that it is increasing your safety, and it is increasing the safety of those around you. You cannot spread it. What does the evidence say? Well, there are all sorts of tests and studies that show masks are very effective. And there are a whole lot of tests and evidence and studies which show masks are completely useless. Others that show that they can actually harm us in ways if we wear them too long and, and we reuse and all these other, wear them improperly, all sorts of other things. There's a lot of conflicting evidence. You see how evidence itself cannot lead you to the truth? It has to be interpreted. What do your eyes and ears tell you about masks? Does it tell you that when you wore it everywhere, that you stopped people from getting sick? How would you know? How do you know that wearing a mask stops somebody from getting sick? How do you know that not wearing a mask was any better? Do you know this? How? What does the evidence of your eyes and ears tell you? Were you in a social group where everybody wore masks and nobody got sick? Or did we have mass societal masking orders and yet still, basically, everyone got sick. That's what the evidence says to me. Now, cause and correlation are incredibly difficult things to sort out. We cannot say definitively that mask wearing stopped us from getting more sick or the other way around, that it made us get more sick. We cannot definitively say either way. We, cause and effect is very hard to uh, hard to decipher in these types of things. The evidence, though, of, of your experience. I'm not talking about what somebody says a study said. Your real-world experience cannot tell you that masks helped you. Okay? And it also doesn't tell you that it killed you. Let's look at the vaccines for a bit. Vaccines come onto the market 
and I remember, what was it, the VP of Pfizer, back when they were just about getting ready for it to release onto the public and getting its safety approvals and all that from the governments and, and the, all those health agencies, they were, he tweeted out that their tests in, I believe it was South Africa, showed a 100% effectiveness rating at preventing infection. And then he said again, 100% exclamation mark. That was in 2021. And then, I think it was just a week ago, he tweets out, uh, I have tested positive for COVID. I am thankful for my four doses of the Pfizer vaccine. My symptoms are... Mo like. So it, it, it was 100%... Uh, his study showed 100% effective at preventing infection. Those were the words. Not severity of symptoms, infection. And then a week ago, despite four doses, he still gets infected. And I know there can be vari there's variants and all these types of things that can, that's the common justification that people will give. Okay, so what does this tell you about vaccines? What does it tell you about the COVID vaccine in particular, without getting into the other vaccines? Well, let's look at what both major sides said. The one side said that these vaccines are lifesavers. They're going to stop you from getting severe symptoms. They can keep you from the hospital. Or if you go to the hospital, they'll prevent you from dying. So the progression, it'll stop you from getting bad symptoms. But if you get bad symptoms and you go to the hospital, it'll prevent you from dying. Uh, that's that type of thing. It was supposed to help you versus give you an extra layer of protection versus the unvaccinated from COVID. And then the other side said that the vaccine is basically... A death sentence it's going to mess up your health i remember hearing i was at a cafe a local cafe this was the tail end of summer going into the fall 2021 so the vaccines have been put out to everybody in society whoever wanted it i think the government data still shows about 90 percent of people um signed up for their for their double dose and all that and this guy this gentleman i met in a cafe here said that he used to work for pfizer in Dearborn, Michigan, their big building there, on the third floor, and he had access to all this information. He was not there anymore, and he said that by the winter, the vaccinated are going to stop, start dropping dead like flies. Well, that's what he said. And I didn't really believe him. I mean, I didn't believe him. What did the evidence of my eyes and ears tell me about the way that this vaccine has gone? Well, despite our overwhelming vaccination numbers... Everyone got sick. Didn't matter. One dose, two dose, three dose, four dose, a million dose. You were not protected from infection. Not only are you not protected against infection, but the data continues to show that it's making... I mean, this is data that you hope is objective, and yet you can't believe that it's actually objective. The evidence of my eyes and ears tell me the people actually in my life who went, who got COVID... It didn't matter if you were vaccinated or not. You could get severe symptoms. You could get light symptoms. You could go to the hospital. You could just have sniffles. Zero doses, four doses. The evidence of my eyes and ears told me it didn't make a difference. I didn't see a winter of death that Joe Biden said was going to come to the unvaccinated. And I didn't see the vaccinated dropping dead like flies, like this supposed former worker of Pfizer said to me. What does the evidence in my eyes and ears tell me? It tells me that the people who are not, who didn't get the vaccination, are no worse off, no better off, necessarily. They could be. 
I grant that that it's possible that this vaccine did provide a, a potential layer of protection, but I have no reason to firmly believe that. None. I also have no reason to believe that this is messing people up for the rest of their lives, is cutting off 20 years of their life, they're, they're not going to be able to have babies anymore. That's The evidence of my eyes tells me that that hasn't happened. You seem no better off if you got it, but you're not dropping dead if you did get it. I do know people who had adverse effects from the vaccine. That is a fact, and I have to interpret that, and I have to put that into the equation of all of this. You see what I'm getting at, though? It's not good enough just to hear a report from some expert, and now you have to believe it. This is not the way Christians live. Christians live by truth. And we live in God's world, which is going to consistently have things for you to know as truth. Because of your sin, you are going to misinterpret a whole bunch of stuff, and you will come to wrong conclusions, and you have to see what your presuppositions are and how you're interpreting things. There's a lot of falsehood out there. The devil is of falsehood and lies. And yet, God's not out to trick us in this world. So, you can have general reliability in the combination of your sight and of your hearing when it's combined. Sight alone is not good. But hearing plus seeing, so that your actual daily lived experience, provides you a more reliable benchmark for interpretation than reading a report from some guy who sits in front of a computer and runs tests 10 hours a day. Does the evidence of your eyes tell you that masks and vaccines have saved society? You need to challenge that presupposition. Did, they, did your presuppositions tell you, though, that if you were wearing a mask and if you got vaccinated, all those people were going to start dying and have major health problems? You have to challenge that. You don't just believe it, even because some countercultural person who, who you are very happy and inspired by because they're speaking out against the grain, and that can be a rallying cry for some. Well, just because they're doing that doesn't mean that their presuppositions are right either. What do the evidence of your eyes and ears tell you? It's the facts on the ground that matter. A general in war only cares about the facts on the ground that he gets his lieutenants, his corporals, his commanders to tell him. Just give me the facts. I don't want your I don't want you putting fluff into this. Just give me the facts and we'll make a game plan to to, to face the face the challenge. To, about where the enemy is and where to dig in, etc. It's the facts on the ground. If you still don't know, then it has to be a liberty issue for you. Say, I don't know if I'm supposed to who I'm supposed to believe. There's voices from every side. Even the evidence in front of me seems conflicting. I don't know what to believe. Well, then it has to be a liberty issue for you for now. You are, cannot be somebody who casts condemnation on those on one side, and you can't be someone who casts condemnation on the other side, if you still don't know. And there can be a lot of room for... Well, I mean, we should, in a sense, we're always learning. We're always putting the facts into the equations and learning. And yet you can never sit in the middle forever. That, that is irresponsible as Christians to, of people of the truth, to not ever come to conclusions. And to just, oh, and to be content with not knowing. I don't know, and that's fine. I don't care to know. It could be that you don't know because God doesn't want us to know. That's possible. 
But we have to actually get to that conclusion first through trying to understand the truth, trying to know what is true. That's what Christians do. That's what people of the truth do. There's no excuse not to try to know. Truth is too important. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he's a name that everybody in the West should know now. He was kicked out of the USSR back in, back in the 70s. But he was one who stood against what the totalitarian Russian state was, was doing and publishing. He urged the Russian people to live not by lies. That's where um, that book I was telling you about before, Live Not By Lies, he got that title from Solzhenitsyn. He wrote Live Not By Lies to the Russians. It's the final thing he published to the Russian people. What did it mean to live by lies? It meant accepting without protest all the falsehoods and propaganda that the state compelled its citizens to affirm, or at least not to oppose, to get along peaceably under totalitarianism. So it's accepting lies and affirming lies. Accepting, affirming, or at least not opposing the lies that are being told to you. If an old Dalrymple quote was that if somebody can make you assent to the most obvious of lies, you have lost all sense of probity. I think I mentioned that in a prior podcast, that that quote. Probity, strong sense of moral well-being. If they can get if someone can get you to affirm an obvious lie. Well, that's what the Russian state was all about back in the USSR. That's what a lot of states are about. Even in the West, our, our media is propaganda. There's propaganda at all times. But if somebody can get you to accept and live by a falsehood, you're now living by lies. Or at least if you don't oppose it. Remember when, for, for school choirs, you see these pictures of clarinet players and, and uh, these players of these instruments and they had to wear masks and cut out the mouthpiece but they still had to wear the rest of the mask on their face that was living by a lie this was not protecting anybody we know this we all know this it's absurd but they had to do it for bureaucracy's sake for to toe the party line they had to live by a lie to get by, to affirm it, to get along peaceably under totalitarianism. But it's the lie that gives all the other lies their force. Once you start ascending to some, you are now prone to a whole lot of others. Solzhenitsyn again. We are not called upon to step out onto the square and shout out the truth, to say out loud what we think. This is scary. We are not ready. But let us at least refuse to say what we do not think. That's a good start. So how do you start living by truth? How do you start living by the evidence of your eyes and ears before you? Because you live in God's world and there's general reliability there. Refuse to affirm what is not true. That's a start. Solzhenitsyn will give some examples of somebody who refuses to live by lies. He gives uh, one, two, three, four, five, six points. I think they're pretty helpful. One, somebody who refuses to live by lies will not say, write, affirm, or distribute anything that distorts the truth. Two, will not go to a demonstration or participate in a collective action unless he truly believes in the cause. Three, will not take part in a meeting in which the discussion 
is forced and no one can speak the truth. Wow. Four, will not vote for a candidate or proposal he considers to be dubious or unworthy. Five, this might be controversial, will walk out of an event as soon as he hears the speaker utter a lie, ideological drivel, or shameless propaganda. And six, will not support journalism that distorts or hides the underlying facts. Maybe rewind and listen to those six again. I'm running out of time here. But somebody who lives by the truth and refuses to live by lies is not going to affirm that which is a lie and not live by it. There's a lot of examples we can put to contemporary culture about this. See, Christians are people of the truth, though. And this is ultimately, we're going to outlast statist and leftist so-called progressive culture by being people who live by the truth. We're going to outlast it because it's all based on lies. There's lies everywhere. But if we're people of the truth, if we're people of Jesus Christ, we live by the truth, we're going to outlast it all. We have to. This is God's world. Lies do not win in God's world. They don't. So live by the truth. Go more by the evidence of God's world in front of you rather than the evidence of, of what you read online. Go outside and actually interpret the things in your, in your friends, in your family, in your church, in the club you're part of, whatever it is. What are you actually seeing? What are you hearing? Put those things together. Does that correspond with what the media tells you? Does that correspond with what experts tell you? Does that correspond with what church leaders tell you? you challenge your own side in your, in, your, in your own head and investigation. So we're going to outlast statist and leftist progressive so-called culture. And if we want to be really effective, we should enjoy doing so in the process. We should enjoy living by truth in the process. That's how we'll be really effective. There's a book coming out soon. It's called uh, Meme Them to Death. <laughs> I find that title hilarious, but it's basically about uh, we should have joy even in in making memes about how what, what, a, what a lying culture that we're in and being people of the truth, being people who enjoy what we're doing. You know, enjoy it. That's, a, that's if you want to be really effective. Don't be a downtrodden, cynical Christian. If you can live by the truth and not affirm lies and do it with joy, like really enjoy what you're doing, Oh man, that, that that's intoxicating. That is going, that's very appealing to the people of the world who don't have a message of hope. All right, well, I hope this has been helpful. That's a case for believing the evidence before you. Thank you for listening today. Feel free to share it with others. I'd appreciate it if you do. Thank you for listening. God bless. Go win the nations. Bye-bye.